This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon. What's going on? Not much. How are you? All right. Gearing up for finals week. Yeah. Um, get it. So, trying not to stress out coming off the Thanksgiving holiday, you know. Yeah. Um, so, but it's all right. We do things. We we proceed. We We carry on. <laughs> That's right. Just getting and moving. What's that? What's that song? Carry on, my wayward son. Oh, by Kansas. Yeah, yeah, that's a good song. Yeah. Actually, did you know that that song was written? Um, so the guy who wrote that song, his dad was an Assembly of God preacher. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um. It, so <clears throat> I realized. I don't know. Probably two years ago, I was reading the lyrics of the song. This is the story of the prodigal son. <laughs> and and so I started doing some research. Like, I wonder if the guy who wrote it, I, his name is, I can't think of it right now, but um, I started wondering, like, is the guy who wrote it a Christian? And so I started digging deep, man. And I figured it out. His dad was an Assembly of God preacher. Interesting. Yeah. It's interesting how that happens. There. There's quite a few people that actually end up as famous and their fathers were Assembly of God preachers. I'm not sure I'm not sure why. Um but Joel Osteen, his dad was named John Osteen, and he was an Assembly of God preacher. <laughs> a quite a quite famous one. Really? Yeah. Huh. What do you know? Yeah. Very just like, kind of weird little tidbits there. I think I think it's because Pentecostalism was Pentecostalism was on the rise, right? Uh, you know, you get um, Azusa Street in like 1907, yeah. and so as it as it begins to take the U.S. by storm from west to east, yeah, um, it just makes its way through, and a lot of like really charismatic people found themselves as Assembly of God preachers. Hmm. They were also some of the first to adopt televangelism and. Those kinds of things. So their prominence rose, I think, is maybe how some of that worked. But, yeah, it was interesting. That is interesting. So, okay, Mark 1. Yeah. So we're continuing our series, our Advent series that I'm calling The Coming. Because yeah. um, that is what Advent is. It's the coming of the Messiah, celebrating uh, his coming. And so we're looking at the beginnings of each gospel excuse me, and how they tell that story. Um, And what do they tell about the coming of Jesus? And the thing I love about Mark, Mark's not my favorite gospel. It is one that I really like. I think my favorite gospel gospel is Luke Mm. because it's, it's been coined the gospel of the outcast because Mark's the one that, I mean, Luke's the one that focuses on social justice issues the most. Right. So Luke's the only one that records the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right. right? Like, think about that. Like, Luke's the one that's constantly drawing our attention to the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable. Um, and so he's been coined the gospel for the outcast. And I think that's why I'm drawn most commonly to Luke. Um, 
but Mark's maybe my second favorite go-to gospel because the way I like to explain it is Mark's gospel is kind of like an action movie. You just bust up on the scene. There's no birth narratives. There's no real theological introduction. You just show up on the scene and like Jesus is an adult and he's doing stuff. Mark just cuts to the chase. Yeah, he just jumps right into the story. Yeah. It's like, it's it's very reminiscent of what we would expect an ancient culture to be like, that nobody really cared about little kids. Right. And so when Mark writes it, he just jumps right in with adult Jesus. Right. Um, and we see adult Jesus just immediately on the scene going about doing things. Yeah, the, the first real story we have of Jesus in Mark is his baptism, right? The start of his ministry. Yeah, so you do have that that bit of theological introduction there that Mark right. does. Um, so he says uh, his actual introduction is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Like That's a pretty intense theological introduction. Yeah. So we've talked about this before, but that word good news, that's not a made-up word. That's not a Christian word that people just were using or started using to talk about Jesus. That was a word that existed in ancient society that was used as a political announcement of new kings. Right. So naturally, it doesn't seem out of place that good news would be associated with a kingdom identity. Right. Like that's the context the word was used in. It'd be no different if I said like, if I used the word, or if I used the phrase like, it's in session, like what do you associate that with? Well, Congress or court, because like that's the framework we have for that word or that phrase of words. So as such, Good news is a frame, a phrase, or a word used in political language. So, it, like, it makes sense that that be where the story goes, and th- that's the way Mark frames the introduction. He says the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then the end of his introduction is verse fourteen and fifteen. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near repent and believe in the good news. So he's kind of like bookending. He's absolutely bookending. You've got, you've got good news used three times right there. Like it should be screaming at you that this is what he's trying to draw your attention to. Right. That, that this is absolutely Jesus the King right. over the kingdom of God. Right. And we see it, he does this theological thing here um, with Isaiah the prophet. And he quotes here from Isaiah. See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So the idea here is that someone's going before the king that's going to make clear his path, right? Mm-hmm. They're the lookout. They're the go-ahead. Uh, and it's John the Baptist. And he goes ahead, as the story continues, and he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. 
Now we've talked about this a lot, right? Baptism is also not something that is necessarily uniquely spiritualized. Right. It's a thing that happens in the ancient world where you went through cleansing rituals after certain things happened to you. If you were bleeding, uh, you go through a cleansing ritual. If you found yourself in contact with someone who was sick, you go through cleansing, cleansing rituals. I mean, there were any number of things, men, if you, uh, have an orgasmic experience, you have to go through a cleansing ritual. Like, yeah. There were a ton of different things that were related to your body and the proximity of your body to other things that were unclean in which you had to go through a cleansing ritual. For instance, there's pretty good reason to believe that the quote-unquote bath that Bathsheba is taking is actually her undergoing one of these cleansing rituals. Mm. Um, and so it's just like it's just a thing that you do in the ancient world because they don't have modern medicine. Right. They don't know how to take care of of their body or where germs come from or how to give diseases to one another. And so they're just overly cautious and they do the thing that they think works, which is baptism. So uh, a good modern day example would be if you come in contact with someone who has the coronavirus, you would have to go through a cleansing ritual. Oh, like you would maybe self-isolate, go get tested. Like there are right. steps that you take in order right. to. So, yeah, so protect, like yeah. in comparison, and yeah. if you were to put coronavirus back then, you came in contact with somebody, you would have to go through a cleansing ritual. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe not the best one-to-one, but absolutely probably our best association for today. Probably so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's probably a helpful way to think about it. Um, and so it's not, it's not unique that John is preaching baptism. Right. Be no different than somebody going around saying, wear your mask. Yeah. Right. It's like there's all kinds of people preaching health related things. For sure. Especially back then, because everybody wants the community to be healthy. Because, right, you could have mass outbreak in these tight knit communities like this with lack of modern technology and medicine that we have. Right. right. I mean, you could wipe out whole cities with, you know, Dave Chappelle has this funny story <laughs> that, like, you know, before Ebola and AIDS, like diarrhea is the thing that would kill someone. <laughs> That's my. just not true. But. It's not true. But he's doing an oversimplification of something that is true. Yeah. That there's a whole lot of stuff that we don't actually care about anymore, thinks a big deal, that's killed millions and millions and millions of people. Yeah. Um, and so it's not a big deal that someone's preaching baptism. Right. The interesting thing is that John has spiritualized baptism by making it a baptism of repentance. Right. So that's the unique piece that's at play here. Now, and he puts himself as the one going before, right? He says, there's one coming after me. Yeah. Um, And then John's a weird dude. You read verse six. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. They wouldn't just record that by happenstance. Yeah. Mark's trying to let you know something about John. He's doing something that nobody else is doing. He's a strange dude. The strange strange dude 
just probably stinky, weird, like doing some things different. He's his own guy. He's not the guy that you would think is leading the way for a king. Yeah. And that's going to be a theme that comes back and back and back throughout Mark's gospel is that Jesus is not the kind of king that you would think he's supposed to be. Right. We're not going to get a chance to look at it today, but right after this introduction narrative here, Jesus jumps on the scene and gets to work. And what's, what's the first thing he does after he calls his disciples? He starts casting out demons. Yeah. He starts healing people. He starts performing nature miracles. Yeah. He, he starts resuscitating people. Like Jesus starts doing stuff yeah. that kings don't historically do. They don't care enough about people to do that. But actually, that's the narrative that's being proclaimed here about Jesus in this introduction is that he's going to be a king who cares. Yeah. It's interesting. The author of Mark highlights that it's a baptism of repentance that John is doing, but then Jesus goes to him to be baptized. Yeah. Why does Jesus, the one who's sinless, need to be baptized a baptism for repentance it's a good question i mean presumably he doesn't right that would be the thing right and it doesn't say it here but in the other accounts of this baptism john actually has a debate with him like dude i can't do this you need to baptize me yeah Jesus tells him to do it anyways. I think the whole purpose is he's setting an example by which he can connect with the people around watching. Mm. It's like he's setting an example to do, he's doing what he's asking them to do, but also he's making himself relatable to them. Mm. That's also the purpose of the temptation narrative right after it. Yeah. He goes and is tempted and what's funny is it says, and the spirit immediately, right, left the Jordan and immediately went into the wilderness. Yeah, and actually that word's used in all the the recordings of this. Really? This is recorded in all in three synoptic gospels, and the word immediately is used in each of them. Yeah. Meaning he was just baptized in a repentance baptism. And then straight away, yeah, he's being tempted. There's some scholarly debate about the use of that word if it's more narratival. Mm. Uh, so like it's a narrative marker right. uh, for certain things. I don't find those arguments to be super helpful. Yeah. Um, but I do want to throw that out there because I know we have a lot of other pastors that, that listen to the podcast as well. Um, and so it, it is possible that it's just a narratival like device. Right. I find it unlikely. I do think that it is a marker uh, to note the speediency in which Jesus moved from one event to the next. Yeah. Because it's almost like these were things he had to do in order to start doing what he really wanted to do. Right. Which was the healings, which was the miracles, which was to let the kingdom of God be present on and over the kingdom of darkness. Because that's, 
I mean, if Mark's the only gospel we had, uh, my professor, David uh, Capes, wrote a book called um, Rediscovering Jesus. Sorry, I had to remember it. It's called Rediscovering Jesus. And at the end of every chapter, he makes an argument as how would the church look if this gospel or X gospel were the only gospel we had? And he's like, if Mark's the only gospel we had, we'd do a whole lot of exorcisms. Yeah. We'd never do the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Because we don't see it in Mark. Like, there's a whole lot of things we do different. And so Mark's Jesus jumps on the scene and he's doing stuff. And so it doesn't feel out of place that that word immediately is used. This is an active Jesus present in the world on a mission to defeat evil. Right, absolutely. Like This is what he came for, is to fight evil here. But I do love that after the baptism, and we're not getting into the baptism of Jesus here a whole lot. We do get into it um, on one of the episodes of Pints and Perspectives. The first Jesus part, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, or the Son of God part. That's how you're going to find it in the library. Yeah, but. I think so. So go go listen to that uh, if you want to know more specifically about the baptism of Jesus. Yeah. Um, but for... For our sake, we're not going to get into it. I really want to get into this temptation narrative because we haven't talked about it a lot. (laughs) Luke and Matthew actually record a much more detailed account of this temptation narrative. Um, They're the ones where it's like he's tempted specifically by the devil. Right. Um, And so he's tempted by the devil. And then you have those three temptations where it's like, hey, you know, turn this rock into bread and, um, you know, I'll give you all the city, go up to the highest place, jump off, throw yourself, throw yourself off. The angels will save you, right? All these kinds of, they do these, these three narratives, uh, of some of the temptations that Jesus goes through. But I think the interesting thing for me is in this little section here, we get in the spirit immediately, drove him out into the wilderness. So the word wilderness there could also be translated desolate or like deserted. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a place without life. Right. Like that's how you should think about that. The spirit, the one who gives life, drove Jesus into the place without life. That's interesting. Yeah. You should, like, an an ancient reader would have made that connection in their mind. Right. That the Spirit is the one who gives life. Think, right, Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, bring the good news. Like, all of these, like, um, what is the Bible project called? Hyperlinks. All these hyperlinks would be present in an ancient reader's mind. And they would go, okay, the one who gives life is leading Jesus into the place that has no life. And they would go, okay, this is interesting. And then verse 13, he was in the desolate place for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Okay, so he's in the the desolate place for 40 days. When you see that word 40, like that number 40, you, you should immediately be called to something. 
you could be called to Noah. Yeah, yeah season forty nine. That's the real one. Yeah. Noah is the one that like destruction happened in forty days. There was real destruction that could happen in 40 days. And he's there for 40 days, tempted by Satan. We don't get we don't get the name Satan in all of the temptation narratives. Mm-hmm. But here it's explicit. Like it's being set up that the one who gives life sent Jesus into the place that has no life for a time that has a historic like defining moment of destruction by the ultimate destructor yeah and Jesus overcomes yeah like Jesus does is not destroyed by the ultimate destructor he overcomes the capability or the potential for destruction in this one singular moment. Yeah. And it's it's a setup for what the whole story is going to be out going to be about. And then we get 14 and 15 that we talked about before. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The message is, hey, the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, is that you Jews, you've heard about the kingdom of God. You think it's going to be this very defining moment that happens in which overnight everything's going to change. Uh Uh-uh. It's here now. It's come with me. And it's a kingdom that's conquering evil. Yeah. It's a kingdom that's overcoming darkness. And with that, I'm going to restore individual people. I'm going to heal the man with a withered hand. I'm going to call Levi. I'm going to resuscitate people. I'm going to show myself as an authority over nature. And I'm going to calm some fears while I do that. Right? I'm going to impact individual lives. But the ultimate thing that Mark shows us about the Jesus of Mark is that he is coming to obliterate evil. Yeah. Like darkness has no hold in the kingdom of God. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It, like it's it's a bit mind blowing when you think about it, right? Matthew told us that Jesus is coming from brokenness for brokenness, and specifically, as you pointed out, he's making a new place for women. Oh yeah. Mark shows us that Jesus is coming to get rid of evil and darkness, like Satan no longer has any foothold when it comes to the fully realiz- full realization of the kingdom of God. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, it, it sounds so simple to think about it. Like, it sounds simple to think that all you need to do to resist Satan and temptation and evil is just focus on the kingdom of God. 
right? That sounds simple. Yeah. But in practice, gosh, is that not hard? Right? Yeah. Well, and I think, I think that's why there are two elements here or three elements actually. Number one is that it can't be missed that the spirit is with Jesus. Right. Absolutely. Like it can't be missed that the spirit is with him. He's not alone. And secondly, he's surrounded by a community. The angels are with him. Right. Like he's not there alone because you can't do this alone. That's why one of our values here is to be relational. Like you are not going to be successful in an expression of faith without a community of like-minded people around you supporting you. Yeah. And then thirdly, the final part of the introduction, repent. Yeah. Repent. You're not going to get it right. Yeah. Grace is the, the saving factor there. And that's okay because there's grace for that. Yeah. Like it cannot be missed that repentance is used multiple times here, not because Jesus needed it, but because he was setting up a pattern that would connect with us that it's okay to rely on grace. Yeah. It's okay. In fact, it's expected. Yeah. Jesus modeled the pattern for us that grace and repentance are needed in the kingdom of God for us. Amen. We've said it before, God is not surprised by the amount of your sin. Yep. Um, I think we said that on Practicing Presence, but... Um, I think we've said it a lot of places. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, but God isn't surprised by the amount of your sin. God's also not limited by the amount no, of your sin. he's not. So, repent, ask for grace, receive grace, and move forward. Carry on my wayward son. That's right. And I think that the final piece that I want to point out here is that he says, repent and believe. Well, what, what are we believing in? Mm. Mm. That's a huge, that's a huge thing there, right? Like repent and believe. Well, what are we supposed to believe in? yeah, Yeah. What is belief? Well, Mark tells us believe in the good news. What's the good news? The coming king. That the coming king is here now coming to rid the world of evil.